in chapter 53, the first 10 verses, someone is speaking about the Lord himself, or a spokesman of the people is speaking about what I call the suffering figure. Scholars call him the suffering servant. But when you look at it, there's really no indication here that this person who's referred to in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 53 is that same servant. There was a different speaker this time. In fact, it could be the servant speaking as a spokesman for the people about the Lord himself. How do we know it's the Lord himself? Because of the servant tyrant parallelism, which parallels chapter 14, the king of Babylon, with chapters 52 and 53, which talk about the king of Zion. And part of that structure includes chapter 53, which talks about the king of Zion in his descending or negative aspect. And chapter 52 talks about his ascending or positive aspect. Isaiah's great themes are those of humiliation and exaltation, as you know. And this account here in 53 is his humiliation aspect, where he's being humiliated, he's suffering. But you know that those are not themes in and of themselves, that they don't stand alone. They're tied to the other themes of salvation and exaltation, the paired themes. So when you see that, you know that this is not the end-all. This is not the final condition of this person. It's prelude to his exaltation. Who has believed our revelation? On whose account has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 1. The revelation is talked about in chapter 28, you remember? There it was a question of, are people going to go on from the lesser portion of the word of God to the greater portion, or from the fundamentals, which are likened to milk, to meat, or revelation, divine instruction? Chapter 28, verse 9 says, Whom shall he give instruction? Whom shall he enlighten with revelation? And most people were not acceptable of that kind of higher instruction or the divine wisdom that's offered them. There is a dichotomy there between those who do accept and those who don't. In Isaiah, it's always the few that do and the many that don't accept revelation or instruction. And so it is here in chapter 53, Who has believed our revelation? Very few. Some, yes. Some go on and accept divine revelation from God and hold fast to those things, to the word of God, and keep the laws of God and all the things that he's revealed through his servants, the prophets. But the majority? No. In Isaiah's context, not so. The majority of people are in a apostate or descending mode, descending down the spiritual ladder, and don't come back up. And that's why the judgments of God come upon them. They're even losing what they had. The pairing of these two ideas, who has believed our revelation on whose account has the arm of the Lord been revealed, both ideas have to do with revelation. The parallelism of those two ideas tells you that those who believe the revelation, which revelation? Well, all the revelation of God, and especially the revelations given through the Lord's servant, who is the Lord's mouth and voice and so on. Those who believe the revelation are those on whose account the arm of the Lord has been revealed, or the arm of the Lord is manifested to those who believe the revelation, which implies that those who don't believe God's revelation don't accept the arm of God, or are not savvy of what he represents. The arm of the Lord is a person. The two arms of God we've seen in... Um, Chapter 51, verse 5, are 
righteousness and salvation. Salvation being the Lord himself and righteousness being his servant or forerunner who establishes righteousness so that salvation may come. These are the two arms that judge the peoples. In this case, which arm are we talking about? In this case, we're talking about the arm of salvation. Or actually, either arm, because if you don't accept the one, you don't accept the other. And that's how it works. If you don't accept the Lord's forerunner and all the preparatory work that he does, then how are you going to accept or be there in a position to welcome or receive the Lord when he comes? You're not. In this case, the arm of the Lord, by context anyway, appears to be describing this suffering person, who is the Lord himself. Like a sapling he grew up in his presence, verse 2, a stalk out of arid ground. The sapling and stalk idea is similar to what we saw in chapter 11, verse 1, which talks about the stalk of Jesse. A shoot will spring up from the stalk of Jesse, and a branch from its graft bear fruit. And those are messianic titles, or messianic imagery, a shoot, a stalk, a branch, a graft. So when you see this in verse 2, you know that those other terms like that are also metaphors that describe a messianic individual. Of course, Jeremiah literally calls the Lord's servant the branch, but Isaiah doesn't necessarily make it so literal. He doesn't come out directly and say that. Like a sapling, he grew up in his presence, a stalk out of arid ground. That's kind of a contrast. Growing up in his presence and out of arid ground, arid ground implies a cursed state, a state of malediction or covenant curse, which implies wickedness or apostasy by people in general at the time of his growing up or the time that he comes. And yet he himself grows up in the presence of the Lord, meaning that he himself has access to God, He's not cut off from his presence, as perhaps the majority of people are cut off from his presence because of their wickedness. It's kind of a contrast between him and the people among whom he grows up. He had no distinguished appearance that we should notice him. He had no pleasing aspect that we should find him attractive. In other words, he's not your charismatic personality who kind of sweeps everybody off their feet and has this aura about him of respect and dignity, uh, like a statesman, perhaps, or like some very popular persons. That's not how he comes across to people. He's not here to make a big impression. There are some links in chapter 53 to other parts of Isaiah, word links or connecting ideas. We saw that at the end of chapter 52. It talks about the servant. The servant has many word links throughout Isaiah. Also, the last part of Isaiah 53 has many linking ideas. But these first ten verses really have very few connecting ideas to other parts of Isaiah, which shows that they're somewhat unique, that this description or this person is quite a unique person. He's not the servant. He doesn't link through word links or other rhetorical connections or typological connections to a servant. His mission is distinct from the servant. The servant, in the end of chapter 52, is marred. Chapter 57 describes how he's then healed. But this person, in chapter 53, actually dies. He doesn't recover. He dies, but chapter 52, verse 1, tells us also that he awakes and arises. He dies, but is resurrected. Because of the structure of the servant parallelism, what happens to the one happens to the many, 
Zion rises from the dust, and that's a resurrection motif, and so does, by implication, this person who dies. He's part of the same structure. When we read this in uh, chapter 53, we don't have a lot of linking ideas to other parts of Isaiah. And that tells us that this person is unique. He's not any of the other characters that are mentioned there. Not human characters, anyway. But we'll see that there are several linking ideas to the Lord himself, besides the structural one in the servant iron parallelism. Verse 3, he was despised and disdained by men, a man of grief, accustomed to suffering. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was shunned, deemed by us of no merit. And what is it that causes people to treat someone like that? Especially if it's someone who's of God and comes from God or is a messenger from God or has authority from God. What is it that causes others then to treat such people with disdain as if they're nothing and they despise them and cause him various forms of oppression or persecution so that it causes him to suffer. What is it? They recognize their own shortcomings or their own guilt. He's a pure person, a righteous person. His lifestyle would be a contradiction to their own. Especially since in Isaiah's context, the majority are rejecting God anyway. If they rejected God, they would reject anyone who would come in the name of God or authorized of God. He gets a very negative treatment here from perhaps those who should be most partial and amenable to welcoming him and sustaining him and uh, receiving the word of God that he brings to them. This again reiterates the suffering mode that he comes in and the humiliation that he encounters. That you know from Isaiah's structural themes that that is a necessary prelude to exaltation. There is no exaltation without a prior humiliation, and there is no salvation without prior suffering. And the higher you go on the spiritual ladder, the more humiliation and the more suffering you have to endure and go through. To go from one level to the next highest level, you go through a descent before an ascent, and the higher you are on the spiritual ladder, the greater is the descent that precedes it. It's quite obvious from Isaiah's context that this person descends below them all and suffers beyond all of any of the other characters. Look at King Hezekiah who suffers grievously, but it doesn't compare to this. Presumably Isaiah himself suffered. I think he appears to be a type of a servant who suffers and is persecuted and so forth. People smite him on the cheek and pluck his beard and so on. They probably did that to Isaiah and he's using himself as a type, but this happens to this person and much more. Verse 4, yet he bore our sufferings, endured our griefs, though we thought him stricken, smitten of God, and humbled. We thought he was under some kind of curse of God, because he didn't seem to be able to come out of this. Yet, what was actually going on, that he was enduring the curse that was really ours, which he took upon himself. We know that this person is innocent from the context of the whole chapter. As we proceed, we'll see that this person is not guilty of any sin or transgression that would cause covenant curses to come upon him. And so these covenant curses that are upon him, or these adversities, are not through his own fault. He bore our sufferings, the things we should have suffered. He endured our griefs, the things we should have grieved with. Was he smitten of God? We thought him smitten of God and humbled. Yes, he was smitten of God because he took upon himself our transgressions. As it says in verse 5, 
He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. The price of our peace he incurred, and with his wounds we are healed. So this person is some kind of proxy for the rest of us. And notice the pronouns, our sufferings, we despised him, deemed by us of no merit. Who is speaking? There's a spokesman speaking on behalf of God's people who is speaking about him. It's no longer the Lord speaking about his servant as at the end of chapter 53. There is somebody who really knows and understands what this person's life is all about and what happened to him really. Whereas we at the time it happened, or most people at the time it happened, were not aware. And this person is now pointing out what really happened. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities, which shows the manner that he suffered. He suffered by being pierced. And one cannot help but link that to the suffering of Christ on the cross when the nails pierced his hands and his feet and the spear pierced his side. He was crushed also under the weight of the cross, not for any transgression or iniquity of his own. There is a difference between transgression and iniquity. Transgression is when you transgress the laws of God or you commit a sin and you're guilty of that. Iniquity is something that's handed down from generation to generation. There are negative behavioral patterns or dysfunctional behavioral patterns that are passed on which are the results of sin. They're cumulative. They have to do with covenant curses that happen when people sin and transgress. And those covenant curses causes people to labor in adverse situations and to react to them perhaps negatively when they're not able to cope with the consequences of their transgressions. These things are passed on from generation to generation. And he took all of that upon himself, not just our personal transgressions, but also those of our forefathers, those things that we inherited from them. The price of our peace he incurred, and with his wounds we're healed. Here we have a word link, peace, to other parts of Isaiah. It is the Lord himself who brings about peace in the book of Isaiah. 26.12 O Lord, thou bringest about our peace, even all that we have accomplished thou hast done for us. He's the one that brings about our peace or our salvation. Also, being healed, as we saw in chapter 6, being healed is synonymous with salvation. We see it in several places in the book of Isaiah. Peace is also synonymous with salvation. It appears in parallel with salvation. The main theme of this verse, then, is, in fact, salvation. That he is suffering these things for our salvation, for our peace, for our healing. He's paying the price for that. Again, alluding to his role as a proxy, our proxy. He's doing these things on our behalf. We know that those who receive peace, for whom he pays the price, are the righteous, in fact those who repent of their transgressions. And so putting two and two together implies that only for those who repent is there salvation, or mercy in this case, because he suffers justice on their behalf. Under the law of justice, someone has to pay the price for transgression, and he does. So there is mercy involved here for those who repent. implies that for those who don't repent, or for the wicked, there is no mercy, because there's no peace for the wicked. They themselves suffer under the law of justice. Verse 6, we all like sheep had gone astray, each of us headed his own way, the Lord brought together upon him the iniquity of us all. Again, the pronouns we and us and our as before. And who are we? 
sheep. Sheep is a kosher animal, and elsewhere in the book of Isaiah, the Lord's people are called his flock or his sheep. So you know it's talking about the covenant people of the Lord, not the Gentiles. Those who receive this salvation or this healing or peace are his own covenant people. Again, suggesting that the wicked, or those who are not his covenant people, don't inherit peace or salvation. But there's an interesting play on words here. We all, like sheep, had gone astray. Each of us headed his own way. So we're all going in different directions, straying away from God, from the covenant, from the law of the covenant, and the Lord brought together upon him the iniquity of us all. That's a beautiful image, isn't it? We're all scattering, and then he gathers up our iniquities and dumps them all upon him. The iniquity of us all, what about those who don't repent? Yes, even theirs. Because all they have to do is repent, and he had already suffered their iniquity as well. Whether they repent or not, he still suffered their iniquities, in other words, or suffered for their iniquities. Each of us headed his own way. That implies that we have left God's way. There is only one way that's God's way. It's kind of like the book of Judges, where every man did what was right in his own eyes. And then they suffer the consequences of that. Verse 7, he was harassed, yet submissive, and opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter, like a sheep dumb before its shearers, he opened not his mouth. Twice it says he opened not his mouth. Why would it say that twice? That's the only thing that it really emphasizes like that in the whole chapter. He could have opened his mouth and defended himself. He could have spoken up. He could have um, said, you guys are wrong. You're making a big mistake. Or he could have pointed out their faults. He chose not to. He chose not to speak up because that's what God wanted him to do, to be submissive. What did God inflict upon him? Harassment, slaughter, arrest, and trial in the next verse. Being pierced, being crushed, bearing our sufferings and griefs, being shunned by people, deemed to be nothing of worth when he was of most worth. The lamb led to slaughter is a sacrificial idea, which appears again in verse 10, which refers to an offering for guilt. If he made his life an offering for guilt, in Hebrew it's asham, it's anciently a sacrifice under the law of Moses that was offered when a man transgressed. The lamb led to slaughter reminds one of the Passover lamb, and it's another metaphor. The Passover lamb was proxy for the firstborn of Israel, that they would not die. Here he's proxy also for the firstborn of God's people, who will not die, who will not die spiritually or physically. He's led to slaughter. That means he dies. Like a sheep dumb before its shearers, he opened out his mouth. It's more imagery. He comes among the people of God, who are his sheep, the covenant people. He's sheared also. It implies that he's sheared, that his clothes are taken away. You can't help but identify this with Christ during his earthly ministry in Galilee and barns of Jerusalem. By arrest and trial he was taken away. Who can apprise his generation that he was cut off from the land of the living for the crime of my people to whom the blow was due? Isaiah really hits home with this idea that he's our proxy. He dies. For his own crime? No. For his people's crime. The crime of my people. That is, again, the covenant formula. For their transgressions, justice needed to be done. The blow was a punishment due for their transgressions. And he suffered the blow, or the covenant curses, or the consequences of transgression. He suffered under the law of justice on their behalf. It also implies that he was done so formally, through trial and arrest, 
He wasn't just beat up by a gang somewhere in the woods. He went through an official execution. Who can apprise his generation that he was cut off from the land of the living? Implies more than just the covenant people. Generation implies almost the dynasty. It's possible that it refers to his lineage. It talks about him having lineage in verse 10, having offspring. He was cut off from the land of the living. That's what Hezekiah did not want, but almost happened to him. That's what does not happen to the servant either. He's marred and then healed, but this person dies. And his death is part of his suffering and his humiliation. His death by trial, condemnation unto death. Verse 9, he was appointed among the wicked in death. Among the rich was his burial. Yet he had done no violence and deceit was not in his mouth. In the Masoretic text, these first two lines are reversed, perhaps by error or perhaps intentionally, we don't know. But the servant-tyrant parallelism helps us in identifying that they were reversed. He was not appointed among the wicked in his burial, nor among the rich in his death, but he was appointed among the wicked in death, and among the rich was his burial. And of course that happened to Christ. He died amidst two thieves, or two robbers, or two offenders of the law, and he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy man. And it was by appointment. That word appoint is also used of the Lord's servant. Both are appointed, the Lord and his servant, by God, one higher on the spiritual ladder than himself, who is his Lord. It says, the Lord will to crush him, verse 10. Each one has his Lord who is above him. Same in verse 6, the Lord brought together upon him the iniquity of us all. To us, he's our Lord, Jehovah, yet on his ring of the spiritual ladder, there is one above him. And when Christ came, he spoke of him as his father. Also, we know that those first two lines of verse 9 were reversed because the wicked do violence and the rich are deceptive. Deception is a sin of the rich or the wealthy. And violence is a sin of the wicked, not the other way around. There may be deception among the wicked and there may be violence among the rich, but that's not usual. Those are paralleled ideas that help us identify these first two lines were in fact reversed makes much more sense to say he was appointed among the rich in death yet he had done no violence among the rich was his burial yet deceit was not in his mouth verse 10 but the Lord willed to crush him causing him suffering that's harsh language he was pierced for our transgressions crushed because of our iniquities in verse 5 to crush is like to crush the life out of something to crush his spirit crush his body. The Lord willed that. Why? Why would God want to hurt his own son or servant? Is that how God is? He's a vengeful retribute of God? No. But in order to bring about the salvation of his people or the redemption of the world, whoever gives him their covenantal allegiance can obtain salvation and peace and healing for the sake of so many people in their lost and fallen state in their state of covenant curse, their state of ignorance and darkness, for their sake the Lord willed to crush him, that good might come out of his sacrifice. That if he made his life an offering for guilt, their guilt, not his own, on the higher levels of the spiritual ladder, one does not suffer for one's own sins. How could he be a proxy for another 
if he himself was a sinner or a transgressor. King Hezekiah interceded with God on behalf of his people. But do you think his offering or the sacrifice of his life would have been acceptable if he himself was a transgressor? And he would have deserved to die. He would have deserved to suffer. But King Hezekiah's suffering went beyond that, and so that of others higher on the spiritual ladder. They didn't deserve to die, but if they did suffer and die, then it could count for the salvation or deliverance of others. That's based on the proxy principle. It's like the animal dies under the law of Moses on behalf of the offender, the one who transgressed against God's law, is guilty of death under the law of justice, and God provided a proxy in the form of the sacrificial animal, and that's what this person is. He made his life an offering for guilt. Offering for guilt is one word in Hebrew, asham. It means the same offering that was offered under the law of Moses. So he dies for them, instead of them. And the higher you go on the spiritual ladder, the greater or more effective is the proxy role that one can perform. Hezekiah's offering of his life only merited, only merited, his people's physical deliverance from the besieging Assyrians. That of seraph, so those on the seraph level of the spiritual ladder, can merit more than that, can merit divine intervention in the lives of others. On this level of the spiritual ladder, where the Lord himself suffers and dies, all of their sins and iniquities may be taken away. That's the highest proxy function known in Isaiah, anyway. That, if he made his life an offering for guilt, he might see his offspring and prolong his days, that the purposes of the Lord might prosper in his hand. So here there's mention of offspring. In verse 9 there is mention of his burial. Those are covenant blessings. To have offspring is a covenant blessing. To have a burial is a covenant blessing. In the servant tyrant parallelism, the king of Babylon has no offspring. They're all cut off. They're all destroyed. He has no burial. His corpse lies unburied, full of maggots. In other words, the king of Babylon is suffering from covenant curses. This person is enjoying covenant blessings. Even amidst all his afflictions, there is a redeeming factor to the whole thing. He has offspring. Well, is that maybe spiritual offspring or adopted sons and daughters of Christ? No. It's always first literal in Isaiah. If he did not have literal offspring, he would be under a curse. But God has provided he's not under a curse because he's innocent. We know he's innocent, he's already said that, he's suffering on behalf of others, and here he's letting us know, additionally, that he's innocent by the fact that he's enjoying some covenant blessings. That he might see his offspring and prolong his days. Your days are prolonged when? When you honor father and mother, according to the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments, honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land. In the Old Testament, if you honored father and mother, and your days were prolonged upon the land... It would be prolonged through your offspring, too. Prolonged upon the land, upon the earth. Land and earth is the same word in Hebrew. So some have offspring that live on into the millennium, into all eternity, like Abraham, whose offspring would be like the sands of the seashore and the stars of heaven for multitude, earthly and heavenly posterity. And others would not. Others would have their offspring cut off, like the king of Babylon, chapter 14, who is juxtaposed with the king of Zion, in these chapters. The king of Zion has offspring, the king of Babylon does not. The king of Zion is buried, the king of Babylon is not. All the way through, there's 21 antithetical or opposite verses describing the attributes of one as the opposite of the other. 
and that the purposes of the Lord might prosper in his hand. Now there is a transition here to the next part of the chapter. That the purposes of the Lord might prosper in his hand. The hand is his right hand, who is his servant, the Lord's servant. And, in fact, anyone who is his servant. How can we prosper? How can the Lord's servants prosper? How can the Lord's servants be empowered if the whole thing rests upon a false foundation? The servant himself at one time and all the rest of us are sinners. We have need to repent of our transgressions of the law of God. And when we do so, we are forgiven because he is our proxy and has taken our guilt and transgressions upon himself. But if he did not come along, if he did not function as our proxy to take away our guilt and our iniquities, then how could we do anything? We would remain in transgression. The purposes of the Lord would not prosper in us. They couldn't, because we would ever remain in our lost and fallen state. We would ever remain in a state of transgression, suffering the consequences of transgression or the curses of the covenant. The Lord has done this, brought this work of deliverance for us, this proxy atonement for our sins, our transgressions, and based upon that foundation, we can function as his servants. Or the Lord's servant can function legitimately. Otherwise, he too would be in a state of transgression. The Lord's servant could not prepare a people for the coming of the Lord, this time in an exalted state, in a saved condition, in a resurrected state, if the people remained in a state of transgression. They all must repent and assume a higher level on the spiritual ladder for the Lord to come and dwell among them. If we're separated on the spiritual ladder too far, then he cannot live with us. We have to be in proximity to him. We have to acquire his divine attributes so that he can live among us or we can dwell in his presence. Notice all of these metaphors in this chapter. The arm of the Lord, sapling, a stalk, a lamb, and now his hand. And those are just as real as if he's named them. Each one refers to a person, the Lord and his servant. Verse 11, he shall see the toil of his soul and be satisfied. He shall see the toil of whose soul? The last one mentioned, who is the hand of the Lord. In other words, the Lord's servant, his forerunner, his righteous servant, the one who establishes righteousness, the arm of righteousness, the ensign, the light, all the things we've already named. He too suffers, as Hezekiah suffered. Anyone on the spiritual ladder who performs a messianic or proxy role, suffers. They don't suffer as much as Christ suffered. They don't suffer to the same degree as the king of Zion himself, but they suffer. Again, not for their own transgressions, but for those of others, as Hezekiah did. He shall see the toil of his soul and be satisfied because of his knowledge, and by bearing their iniquities shall my servant, the righteous one, vindicate many. Now the Lord is speaking himself. He has done his work of atonement, his proxy salvation. Now he talks about a servant again, as he talked about him at the end of chapter 52. And he talks about him in verse 12, chapter 53, 11 and 12. So what's going on? We have a chiasm here, if you like. A, B, A. The middle part of the chiasm is the Lord himself. The servant is one who prepares the way before him. The servant too goes through humiliation and exaltation. His appearance was marred beyond human likeness 
He appalled people, and yet he became exceedingly eminent and highly exalted. Chapter 52, verses 13 and 14. He astounds many nations, rulers shutting their mouths at him. This man is an exalted being. He's very prominent in the whole earth. How did he get that way? Just came along and assumed this role? No. He himself went through horrendous humiliation and suffering before that. He was marred. And here it talks about it some more. He had toil of soul, just like King Hezekiah in chapter 38. Read that chapter and you see the tremendous suffering that Hezekiah went through. He really did suffer. He had toil of soul. And when the Lord sees that and the person endures it well and suffers in humble submission to God's will, then there comes a point when it's enough and the Lord is satisfied. He shall see the toil of his soul and be satisfied. He did offer his life up to God. He consecrated his sufferings on behalf of others. They lent substance to his intercession with God on their behalf. He paid the price. He shall see the toil of his soul and be satisfied because of his knowledge and by bearing their iniquities shall my servant the righteous one vindicate many. What knowledge? Is he just smarter than the rest of us? Because of his knowledge shall my servant vindicate many? Knowledge is a covenant term, as we've already discussed. Knowledge implies covenant knowledge, or knowledge of the covenant, a knowledge of God and his ways, a knowledge of the terms of the covenant. And he knows that according to the terms of the covenant, that if he intercedes on behalf of others and pays the price for their transgressions or answers to God for their infidelities and their unfaithfulness or their transgressions, he, through his sacrifice, can merit others' deliverance. In Hezekiah's case, that's limited to physical deliverance. In the Lord's own case, it's not limited to physical deliverance. It incorporates all deliverance, physical and spiritual. Particularly spiritual, because the physical flows out from there. It allows other proxies, like King Hezekiah or the Lord's servant, in this case, to also merit deliverance on a physical level. What is this knowledge? It's paralleled with bearing their iniquities. Because of his knowledge and by bearing their iniquities. His knowledge of the terms of the covenant lead him to bear their iniquities or makes him willing to bear their iniquities. Does the Lord himself do this? Of course. Is it limited to the servant only? Of course not. The servant is only doing what he has seen his Lord do. He does it on a lesser level. But he does it nevertheless. The servant is emulating the Lord in many respects, as many as he can physically do. The Lord bears our iniquities. He vindicates us when we repent. The servant does it on a physical level. Because of his knowledge and by bearing their iniquities shall my servant, the righteous one. Ah, that particular servant, the one who personifies righteousness, the one who is righteousness or is righteous, the word righteous one, righteousness, are virtually synonymous in Hebrew. One is tzaddik, tzedek, tzidkah, or tzedakah. They're all terms implying or identifying the Lord's servant. He exemplifies righteousness to us. as a model of righteousness for us to follow. That's where the toil of his soul comes in when he bears their iniquities. Because of his knowledge of the terms of the covenant, he knows that he can do that and merit deliverance for them. In that way, he vindicates them. 
they are vindicated. They don't have to suffer death at the sieging Assyrians or some other calamities because of the Lord's servant intercession, they will be delivered from things like that. The word in Hebrew, to vindicate, is the same word as to make righteous, or to make right, or to validate. The servant vindicates, or makes righteous, or validates others. Many, in fact. The idea of the one and the many. Verse 12, I will assign him an inheritance among the great. He shall divide the spoil with the mighty. Because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with criminals, he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Does the suffering figure do this in the first part of chapter 53, the Lord himself? Of course, he does all of that. But here the Lord is speaking of his servant. In these last two verses, as at the end of chapter 52, so the servant does that also in the course of emulating his Lord. In fact, every one of these lines, every one of these sentences, has a type in Israel's history. Caleb received an inheritance among the great. When the Israelites came into the promised land, Caleb was given an inheritance among the great because he was one of the two spies sent who remained faithful to the Lord when all the others gave a bad report. Joshua and Caleb gave a true report. And they were the only ones of that whole generation that came out of Egypt, that actually inherited the promised land. All the others died in the wilderness. And Moses also passed on. David divided the spoil with the mighty in his wars against the Philistines. David is the type of this person. Because he poured out his soul into death, Hezekiah did that in chapter 38. And was numbered with criminals. David was numbered with criminals. After Samuel anointed him, Saul sought his life. And he ran around in the wilderness of En Gedi with 300 outcasts of society. Was Christ numbered with criminals? Of course, he was crucified between two thieves, offenders. He bore the sins of many. Who did that? He bore the sins of many refers to Job. When Job's children were partying, indulging in their own pleasures, he would come in the evening and offer up sacrifice in their behalf. And Job was smitten with many curses, which convinced Job's companions that he was guilty of transgression, but in his proxy role, we see that he was really paying the price of others' transgression, not his own. He made intercession for the transgressors. That's Moses and Israel made the golden calf, and God was about to wipe out the whole nation, came out of Egypt. Moses interceded for the transgressors with God, and God spared the people. So there we have a lot of links to other Old Testament characters, and we've already seen that the servant is like a lot of these heroes of the Old Testament, that he performs many of the same functions as they did, as Moses led the Exodus, as Joshua led the conquest of the Promised Land, and so forth, as Abraham came from a distant country from the east to the Promised Land, and as Cyrus rebuilt the temple, All of these things that set precedence in Israel's history are all roles that the servant assumes. But who is the servant? He would have to be on the same spiritual level as those characters of the Old Testament were. He has to be on the same spiritual caliber, and in fact, he is, because he too suffers as they suffer. He too intercedes. He too prays on their behalf. He too gives a good report. He does all the things that God requires him to do. Fights the battles of the Lord. And when all is said and done, 
He's only emulating his Lord, who is his exemplar on the next highest level of the spiritual ladder.